This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. With me today, I have managing editor Alice Lipscomb-Southwell. Hello. Commissioning editor Jason Goodyear. Hiya. And editorial assistant Amy Barrett. Hiya. We're going to tell you all about the December issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. The December issue is all about the search for extraterrestrial life, so today's episode is going to be an Aliens special. First up, we have Alice. Alice, what are you going to tell us about? I'm going to be talking all about the search for alien life in our solar system. So, um, obviously we've got Earth, which we know has life on it, you know, plenty of it. But uh, there's always quite a lot of interest in you know, all the difference of planets and moons in our solar system. And there's quite a few missions that are sort of planned or on their way at the moment to go and investigate some of these other worlds. Now, when you sort of think of life on other planets, it's not going to be large life. It's not going to be like giraffe-like things and elephants like mosey no. about. <laughs> um, so it's probably more likely to be microbial life. Um, so, I mean, for example, there is a mission on its way to Mars at the moment that's going to have a look for um, any signatures of microbial life there. Uh, so we'll be digging down to have a look for that. Um, obviously, you might have seen on the news back in, well, when was it, September, there was a lot of hoo-ha about phosphine being detected on Venus. And that was really exciting. We were like, yeah, great phosphine. That's a sign of life because microbes can um, produce that. 
Now, it was a telescope that detected that by looking at sort of light spectrums and things like that. Um, now there's a little bit of doubt coming in about whether there really is uh, life on Venus or whether phosphine was even really detected. Um, but nevertheless, it still raises a lot of interest in going to have a look at the planet and see if there is anything there. Um, Unfortunately, Venus, it is quite hot, obviously quite close to the sun. Um, but up in its atmosphere, if you get about 55 kilometres up, you can actually get much balmier conditions, which are a bit more like Earth, so similar temperatures. Um, unfortunately, there's quite a lot of acid in the clouds there as well. So anything that is living there is going to have to be tolerant to any sort of acidic atmosphere. Uh, yes, Sarah? So, Alice, is there anything on Earth that could survive those sorts of conditions? Is there anything that could survive in, you know, that's airborne or could survive in, like, those really acidic clouds? Well, scientists do say that we can look for Earth analogues. So if you've got something like the Atacama Desert, which is incredibly dry, so if we were looking at planets or moons that also have dry conditions, then if we look at the sort of life that could exist there, then that might offer some clues. Um, also in Ethiopia, there's some really acidic lakes. Um, so you know, if life can survive in those, which we think it can, then that could also be the case on these other places too. Yes, Amy? When you say that scientists are looking for signs of life, obviously you mentioned phosphine, but what other signs could there be that life exists? Well, you have to sort of look for the conditions that life could exist in. Um, if, if there's a sign of maybe hydrothermal activity, I mean, on Earth, we know that uh, microbes can exist in hydrothermal vents, I mean, deep down in the ocean. Um, they can also look for signatures in the atmosphere of life there. And I mean, if you're really lucky, if you went onto Mars, you dug down, you might find some microbes there. Um, I mean, things we're not sure really if fossils or anything could exist on Mars. So it would be really cool if you could just go and start digging fossils up. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably not going to be the case. Martian paleontologist would be a really cool job. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be so cool. Um, yeah, I mean, like, so there are missions on their way to have a look for these things. Unfortunately, it's always really sort of quite tight competition to get funding for these things. Um, so I mean, one quite interesting thing is upon Titan, um, they look, went, they sent some probes down, had a look, and it's got river valleys, it's got hills, it's got pebbles. Oh my God, this looks just like Earth. But um, in reality, any sort of water that exists there isn't really water as we know it. It's made of hydrocarbons like ethane and methane. So anything that exists there, it can't be water-based life. And you know, DNA as we know it doesn't exist in these conditions. So it's got to be sort of very alien life if it is there. Hi, Jason. So Titan, that's one of Saturn's moons, right? Yeah, it's actually the biggest moon of Saturn. Are there any other moons with um, potential signs of life on them? Yeah, there's Enceladus, which is another one of Saturn's moons. Um, now, that's just a tiny sort of snowball of a world. It's um, you know, really sort of icy. It's got no atmosphere. Um, it's got a frozen surface. But when the Cassini probe went there, um, that was back in about 2006, I think, 2005, 2006, um, it found that it was jetting water out from beneath its surface. So that's impossible, like hydrothermal activity happening there, which is really exciting. Um, unfortunately, no missions are planned to go back there to have a look. Um, but that could be a really good option because you can just fly past, have a look. Um, and then the Jupiter moon as well, Europa, um, the, there's the JUICE and the Europa Clipper missions planned. Um, now, the surface of Europa is quite sort of young, quite fresh looking, which means there's probably a lot of volcanic activity going on there. Um, 
So yeah, it might it does seem like it's got a, a subsurface ocean that's salty water as well. So again, if there's a salty ocean beneath the surface there, that could be a great place to look for life, but it would mean landing on it, digging down, sort of shoveling up some ice and kind of <laughs> have a look. So these missions, if you say that they're planned, does that mean they won't be happening in the near future? Or when do we think we might actually get some results back? Um, well, the Juice and Europa ones, they are planned. They're probably going to be happening in the next few years. Um, some missions are sort of proposed, but, you know, if the funding's not there, you know, lots of rounds of missions will go to NASA and ESA. They almost have to fight for a chance to um, get to go there. Um, so in some cases, yeah, it just isn't, you know, isn't the funding there for it. But um, so there are ones planning to go to Mars as well. There's Rosalind Franklin that's planned in the next couple of years. Then there's... Um, which one's on its way? It's uh, Perseverance is on its way. There's Al Hamad as well. Um, yes, they're all en route. So hopefully we might get some results in the next few years. Speaking of the probes, Alice, um, if we're going to be sending probes from Earth, how do we make sure we're not going to accidentally contaminate potentially inhabited worlds with our own bacteria and microbes? That's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, what you can do is um, when they're making the probes, they are so careful about that. Uh, you, know, you don't want to go infecting other planets or other worlds. Um, so the scientists will always wear sort of um, PPE, I suppose. <laughs> uh, you know, they're wearing masks, they're wearing gowns, um, they're operating in a sort of very clean environment um, and they'll test it and um, get any bacteria off it before it goes as well. Um, so that mean, ensures that anything we are finding on another planet isn't, from Earth, and also that we're not infecting any worlds. And isn't there a danger to bringing stuff back to Earth? Like, would we do that if we found something? Would we bring it back and then release it here? <laughs> We'd be like the aliens in War of the Worlds. We'd catch a cold <laughs> from Enceladus and it would kill us all. <laughs> I mean, we have brought stuff back already, Things, um, but it's generally sort of rocks from uh, the moon. Um I mean, we can bring samples back. And again, I suppose the same process would happen. We'd make sure that uh, we kept them in some sort of clean room when they arrived and you can check them first there, quarantine them so they don't infect <laughs> us. There's definitely like bits of moon rock in museums and stuff that you can just you can just touch and pick up. So You, you can touch know. them. Are you sure? Yeah, well, meteorites and asteroids, definitely. Bits of space rock. Maybe, maybe not moon rock. That's prob- there's probably not enough of that on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> you break into museums and just like touching the moon rock. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Alice. So now we're going to move on to Jason, who has uh, something non-alien-y to talk about. <laughs> Non-alien-y. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's sort of alien-y because the, um, the worm that this uh, drug delivery system is based on is pretty gruesome. But um, basically, it's about this group of multidisciplinary researchers in Johns Hopkins um, who've created a drug delivery system based on parasitic worms. So the original idea for this uh, came because apparently something like $600 billion worth of medication is wasted by patients who um, don't take their prescriptions correctly. Either they forget or... There's some sort of other underlying factor, perhaps uh, disability or mental health problems or degenerative brain um, disorders. You didn't have to call me out like this. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I forget a pill every now and then. And, um, yeah, so th- these, there's been quite a few groups trying to, to get around this problem um, with slow-release medication uh, delivery systems. 
So obviously the, the one that people are probably most familiar is, is, is these patches like you use for um, nicotine replacement therapy uh, for people who are trying to quit smoking, but they use those for other things as well. But um, this team particularly wanted to get a system that would deliver drugs directly to the GI tract. And the problem with that is there's a mucus layer on, on the tract that's continu continually shedding um, cells, excuse me. So that, that sort of patch won't stick to it for very long. So they're thinking, well, how can we get around this problem? So let's look to nature. There's these parasitic worms that are able to attach to this area and that live in this area for a you know, significant period of time. So what they did, they made these little, they call them therogrippers, and they're like tiny, they're about a quarter of a millimetre across, so just, just about big enough to see a speck of the human eye. And they're kind of a star-shaped spring system, and they clutch on to this mucus layer uh, when they're ingested, either orally or by enema, and then they can, like grip on to the inside and slowly deliver the, the drug payload over, you know, a longer period of time. Oh, Sarah? Wow. So that sounds almost a bit gruesome. So presumably because they're so small, you wouldn't, you wouldn't feel anything, would you? No, no. I mean, they're absolutely tiny. So they, they, look, they look like specks of dust. They're so small. Well, would you need to swallow loads of them then if they're so small? Because, I mean... That feels like you're going to have to swallow like a thousand of them or something to have an effect. Yeah, so that's that's something that they're working out at the moment. Um, so at the moment, they've just they've tested them um, with a painkiller payload, although obviously they could be used for all sorts of different drugs. But um, they're trying, that's the sort of next couple of stages. They're going to try and put them in a capsule like you do with, you know, if you take a, um, a flu medicine or something and it has lots of the little grains inside the capsule. So that, that's kind of one of the things that they'll be investigating. Yeah, but you'd have to take a decent amount of them because they're so small. So they're not going to get broken down by our bodies before they reach this uh, mucusy layer? No, well, they're made in a similar way to microchips. So with something called photolithography. Um, so you, you basically get like you would a microchip wafer and you put the pattern on it and then <coughs> shine light on it. So you can make this, these very fine structures. And then they, um, they work like a spring, but it's not using a mechanical spring. It's using a polymer film under tension. And then when this is exposed, in, this, in the case that they um, carried out their experiment, it was with temperature. So they refrigerate them. And then once they go inside the human body, they warm up. And then the mechanism deploys and they, they attach. But presumably, uh, you, you just pass them once they're finished. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> What is it? What is the worm that they're based on? Is it like a tapeworm or something like it's, that? Yeah, well, it's a hookworm. Um, so it's got like this, the same sort of star-shaped mouth, which it hooks on. Uh, what? How big are they? Are they microscopic or are they... Are they? Um, yeah, they're not... I'm not sure of their exact size, but they're, they're not like worms you'd go fishing with. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of things could we treat using these devices yeah so that, that that's sort of something that they're, they're looking into at the moment so as i say they've tried a painkiller but um another point for where another point where this could the slow release system could come in handy is um for the treatment that require a steady slow release so the researcher i was speaking to said sometimes if you take well often if you take an injection 
or if you take a tablet, you get a high spike in the, the amount of drug that's released and then it comes down. Whereas for some things, that's not really what you want. You, you want a slow and steady approach. So the, it could be for something like that. It's, there's, there's, he said that there's a multitude of applications for it. So do you think they could use that for something like diabetes, maybe? Because they need, uh, people with diabetes need quite a sort of steady amount of insulin in them. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about about um, diabetes, but um, I guess that's, the, that. as I say, that's the sort of idea that, that they're going for, this sort of slow, steady release. It's a very sci-fi kind of picture in my head that I've got of like, you know, there's like loads of cartoons where they go shrink themselves down and go into <laughs> the human body to solve things. I mean, this isn't the, the first kind of nanomedic technology that we've seen, is it? Yeah, so this is part of um, a, a new emerging field of, of medicine that they've called active matter therapeutics, in which this sort of, I mean, it's not really a bot, but it is that sort of, sort of thing, you know, it's a dynamic uh engineered mechanism so um yeah the the, uh, the the research that i spoke to was was saying there's so much stuff currently in the labs being developed with this that it's it's he called it the future of medicine it sounds quite similar to the work of uh, dr ritu raman she uh has developed this uh sort of balloon shaped thing that you can swallow um and it uh expands in your stomach uh, I think it's the the idea is for people who are trying to lose weight. This thing expands in your stomach and makes you feel fuller, so you eat less, um, which can help help people who are struggling to lose weight. And then eventually, when you're done with it, um, it can break down in your stomach, and then you know you you pass it as as normal. So it sounds like that's a fairly sort of common idea of some, of creating these these things that will sort of stay inside the body. Yeah, sort of dynamic systems that um, yeah you take them orally or whatever and then they expand or they grip on or something and then um they do their business and then once they're finished so like for that you wouldn't then that would be a replacement for sort of more severe invasive bariatric surgery i suppose so what are the current limitations of this technology how do you mean limitations so what are the current challenges for those researchers in you know actually getting this to to the stage where patients can take it um, I think that the next the next phase will be the, the capsule. That's what they're working on now because um, they need something to house all of these tiny little things in. Also, they've just gone, so they've tested this in animals. Uh, now they're trying to get human trials going. Uh, so that's the sort of phase that they're at now. And do you reckon they'd be quite affordable as well when they come out? Or is it going to be um, you know, sort of a quite expensive medicine that's only you know, out of reach for most people? Mm, I suppose that would depend on the drug that's delivered by them as well as this mechanism. But presumably, if they're used making um, currently existing microchip fabrication techniques, I can't imagine that they'd be prohibitively expensive. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, Now, Amy, uh, we're going to go back to aliens, going to make this an alien sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, in... The current issue, we've got a science writer, Sue Nelson, is telling us about why we want to believe in aliens. So we've talked about the the search for aliens that's that's already going on. But why do we want to, why do we have this hope that there are aliens out there? And most of us do. Most of us do believe that there is some form of extraterrestrial life. But obviously, some people take it to slightly different levels than others, shall we say. 
Um, so Sue likens uh, the belief in aliens to the belief in religion. There are studies that have looked at um, the relationship between believing in religion and believing in aliens. And actually, it kind of goes the way that you don't think it would. So people who are more likely to uh, believe in religion are more likely to to dismiss um, alien sightings, UFO conspiracies, that sort of thing. And so looking at the psychology of why we want to believe, Sue talks about the psychology of religion. So religion gives us this kind of sense of purpose, the sense of meaning. That's why a lot of people follow it. Um, and for some people, you know, believing in UFO, UFO conspiracies and other conspiracy theories does give people that that sense of confidence in, in the world around them for perhaps things that they couldn't explain through other ways. So there's, you know, the people that don't believe in landing on the moon. I mean, that for some who don't understand the development and technology, that would be quite a hard thing to imagine because we look up and we see it and it's so far away. It is hard to understand if you don't have that understanding, that education um, of how we did it. So it's easier for some people to believe in conspiracy theories. And that's actually been shown in studies. So research by the University of Freiburg did find that belief in conspiracy theories correlates negatively with education. So people who are more educated are more likely to reject conspiracy theories. Um, but thinking about why we want to believe in this conspiracy theories is kind of multifaceted. So, you know, escapism m- makes sense, right? We all need to explain um, the things that are going on around us. And there's actually a shocking statistic that apparently one in two Americans think that UFOs exist and have already visited Earth. Um, so if you go to America, you're likely to find a lot of people that claim to have seen a UFO or at least to know someone who's seen a UFO or believe in these stories. And there are so many stories around. Um, so there's, you know, there's the incidents in uh, in Italy. Two local football clubs were playing a match when suddenly all of their supporters looked to the skies and saw these kind of strange um, shapes. They were kind of white threads falling from the sky. Um, and that was... I think it was like thousands of people that all saw this. Um, Of course, you know, some attributed it to UFOs. Some did say that actually it's probably just an organic compound. So we know that um, there are spiders that migrate and actually um, use their webs as sails, which is awesome. And we should do a whole podcast about that. Um, But it could be that those were the threads that people saw. So there is usually, you know, an explanation for things that people see. Um, And of course, there was, uh, was it earlier this year or last year when there was a a big uh, group of people who wanted to storm Area 51, believing that there were UFOs and proof of aliens uh, being kept there um, by the Nevada military base. Um, And so Sue's talked to psychologists to to try and understand that. And uh, Professor Chris French attributes it to to top-down processing, right? So um, your beliefs and your expectations actually change what you're seeing and what you're perceiving. Um, So if you've heard someone talking about aliens or someone talking about UFOs, and then a couple of days later, you see something that you can't explain in the skies, um, part of your, your, your brain is kind of trying to attribute things in your recent memory to, to what you're seeing and it changes what you perceive. So does that mean it's sort of a cultural idea? So like if you lived in a culture that didn't have the, this concept of aliens, but instead had a concept of, say, angels or something like that, if you saw an unidentified light in the sky, you might attribute it to something completely different. 
Well, I mean, if you think about how um, we were raised, if you were raised religious, you might be more inclined to attribute certain actions to um, acts of God as opposed to someone who was uh, raised in an atheist household. Same with conspiracy theories. If you have you know, family members that say that they've seen UFOs, you might be more likely to to believe in them. Um, and it is a community thing in terms of education as well, because obviously members of the same community are likely to have the same uh, levels of education. Um, so if we know that belief in these conspiracy theories is related to education, it makes sense that they'll we'll see the same groupings as we do in levels of education. Um, it's really interesting, actually, because a lot of UFO sightings tend to be, uh, or t- they tend to, people tend to claim that they've seen flying saucers, right? The, the image of a flying saucer is what we picture as well when we talk about UFOs. But actually, the first use of the phrase flying saucers wasn't actually to describe a UFO's shape. So there was an amateur pilot called Kenneth Arnold who reported after doing a private flight um, that he'd seen these nine shapes that were moving in the sky, right? So um, he he said that they were moving at speeds that the we, we humans couldn't move at. So it, it, he said it couldn't be human uh, aircraft. Um, and actually what he said when he was describing the way that these were flying, he said that they looked like they were saucers that were sort of skipping over the water, you know, like when you throw a stone and it kind of skips. Um, that's how he, how he described them. He said they were like saucers flying. But of course, we didn't take it that way. We we then went on to use, um, and it, was, it says in the piece that the media kind of were consumed by this uh, image of a flying saucer. And lo and behold, all the descriptions of UFOs that come out since then tend to be around this shape. Even on our front cover of the issue <laughs> is a flying saucer because it's so um, prevalent. So people try and attribute these uh, sightings of UFOs or perhaps alien encounters to different things. So there are um, some psychologists looking into sleep paralysis um, and there's some sort of similarities between what happens when you uh, experience sleep paralysis and stories of alien abduction. Um, so when um, you have sleep paralysis, you it's a kind of a state between waking and sleeping when you're kind of, you're paralysed on your bed. And lots of the time it's associated with um, other symptoms such as like a, a weight bearing down on your chest and also strange probing um, symptoms, which sounds very familiar to alien abduction stories where they say, you know, they've someone's perhaps uh, taken them, applied pressure to them to kind of keep them bound. And then there are lots of... Um, alien abduction stories that go along with sexual encounters. So it makes sense that there's kind of an overlap between uh, sleep paralysis and uh, these these experiences. Yeah. That's really interesting because I've only had one sleep paralysis incident in my life and it was terrifying. It was horrible. But I did have that sensation of the pressure on my chest and then like a demon in the room as well. Now, I'm not religious. I also don't believe in aliens. But if I was that way inclined, then maybe I would have been like, it was an alien that did it or something rather than just accepting it was something weird going on in my brain. Yeah, my housemate, old housemate used to get it a lot, but she saw a witch in at the end of her bed. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I've had it. I've had it one time, and I didn't see anything, but I could hear. I could. I could hear what sounded like someone walking through my flat. So I, I wonder if sleep paralysis is related to some sort of almost like a dream-like hallucination. So your brain is sort of inventing, inventing things. So like seeing a figure at the end of your bed, or hearing things around you, and that could explain why why you might see a, like a little grey man, for example. Absolutely, Halluc- hallucinations are sort of 
really closely linked to to sleep paralysis. And hallucinations can uh, also change depending on your memory. So what we hallucinate at the time isn't always what we say we've hallucinated when we're talking about the hallucination. So there's a lot of like false memories that are involved in both sleep paralysis and hallucination. So um, if we sort of try and recall an event, um, often we don't recall it very accurately. So our brain tries to fill in the gaps and it might confuse itself with something that happened even just earlier that day with the hallucination or, or the dream or the nightmare. Um, so there's a lot of like false memories being involved. And so there was actually, there's been a, quite a few studies um, where participants are asked to uh, look at, memorize a list of words, right? So they, they'll have a list and it'll, um, it'll say, you know, snooze, snore, dream, nap, bed and blankets. And, and you'll read the list and you'll, be asked to memorize it then you'll go off and do something unrelated so you're not you're not memorizing these actively it's just trying to find out how how well you can recall them um and then you come back and okay zara uh tell me one of the words that i just said snooze yeah alice snore jason sleep oh okay so Sarah and Alice definitely remembered correctly. Um, those were words that I used, but sleep actually wasn't one that I mentioned. But because all these words are associated with sleep, we tend to put them in the list because our, our brains aren't working kind of... that uh, Because of the way our brains are working to try and remember the, the common theme with all those words. Wow, that's really interesting. Jason fell exactly into the trap that you set. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling Jason was doing it to help out because he's read the piece, but who knows? <laughs> um, but it's it's a really interesting area of research and, and the psychology of why we want to believe, especially, you know, in 2020 when there are conspiracies and fake news abound, I think it's really important that we understand the way our brains work around this so we can kind of identify even in ourselves as to what we're thinking and what we're remembering and what we're perceiving. Okay, thank you very much, Amy. Um, And now you've got something else to tell us about. (gasps) Very exciting, yes. So um, with the sale of the December issue, we've also got the announcement that we are running a competition um, with Dara O'Brien. So you may have seen him on television. He's a very funny man and he's also uh, a very great writer. So he's recently published a book um, called Is Anybody Out There? So it's kind of aimed at, at uh, children, young adults sort of thing, um, but it's a really funny and, and great introduction to aliens. Um, and with the help of Dara, we're going to be judging um, all of your conceptions of aliens. So we're asking everybody who's listening, everybody who's reading the magazine, um, to draw a picture of an alien. Now, you might be tempted to go away and draw the little green man with the kind of round, pointy-chinned face. Um, but luckily, uh, we've got some tips in the magazine to help you from Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum. Um, who's a zoologist and looks at the rules that uh, evolution has taken on Earth and helps us apply those to some of the places that Ice was mentioning or or even further any of the planets in our solar system and beyond. So we're inviting kids and adults alike to send in their drawings of aliens to be judged by uh, Dara O'Brien with the winner announced uh, next year. How is Dara going to choose the winner? 
Well, uh, if we get quite a few, which I'm sure we will, uh, we'll be shortlisting them and then sending them off to Dara uh, for final judging. So what we'll need you to do is, as we're not in the office at the moment, please send them to uh, our address because they'll just pile up and they'll all go to waste, which would be a shame. So please, can you uh, scan them in, email them to reply at sciencefocus.com or you can post them on social media. Um, we've got a hashtag, which is hashtag myalien4sf. Um, but there'll be details on our website. Just go to sciencefocus.com uh, and you can find out more about that. So are we looking for the uh, the most realistic alien, the <laughs> best alien, the most creative alien? <laughs> well, as Alice mentioned, the likelihood of finding alien life is that it will be microbial. And, you know, you can draw a microbe if, if you so wish. And that might be the most accurate drawing that we would get in. Um, but I mean, there's lots you can think about when it comes to designing your aliens. So, for example, um, think about how the alien might live. So, okay, if they're in on Venus, uh, we've talked about how the clouds of Venus are kind of... Is it very acidic? That's right, isn't it, Alice? Yeah. So... Uh, if they're having to get their food from this kind of, uh, from the atmosphere rather than stuff that grows on the ground, perhaps, think about how they're going to do that. So are they going to need a really long neck to reach up to the heights of the atmosphere? Um, or are they going to be in a planet where there's lots of uh, liquid? It might not be liquid water, but it might be liquid of, of ethanol or something like that. So are they going to be swimming? Are they going to be walking? Um, and we can look at... Uh, animals on earth and see how they've adapted to where they live um to to relate that to um how animals or how aliens might live on other planets okay great thank you amy um i'm sure we're all really looking forward to seeing the aliens that uh, you come up with so that's sending them into reply at sciencefocus.com or tweeting them to us at hashtag my alien for sf so thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Science Focus podcast. The December issue of Science Focus magazine is out now. Also in this issue, we look at the camera that could change our view of the cosmos. Stuart Clark discusses the discovery of water on the moon, and we choose our top Christmas gifts for science and tech lovers. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.